Well, good morning. <clears throat> you know, one of the uh, kind of cultural practices that we have in our society in, in America, I don't know if they do this in other countries or not, but we like to ask young people what they want to be when they grow up. Right? I dare say every one of us has either been asked that when we were youth or have asked that of someone else or probably both in many, perhaps many, many times. You get all kinds of interesting answers. Usually, I'm generalizing in just my opinion, but it seems like most either fall into important or cool, right? Like doctor, helicopter pilot, NFL quarterback, whatever. I actually had a child that announced once that uh, they wanted to be, grow up and be an NFL quarterback, and a couple of the siblings got a kick out of that and laughed. But, uh, but, but one answer that I highly suspect no one has ever heard as an answer to the question, what do you want to be when you grow up, is servant. I want to be a servant when I grow up. Right? No one's goal in life is to be subservient to someone else. And that's what a servant is. That's what a servant does. A servant is a person working in the service of another. Listen to the Lord Jesus himself in his brief description of servanthood in Luke chapter 17, verses 7 and 8. He says, will any one of you, he's speaking to his disciples, he says, will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at the table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Right? That's the role of a servant, doing service for another person, subject to someone else's will. We are not naturally drawn to servanthood. There's nothing in our flesh that makes servanthood appealing, and our society does not encourage us to that either. And this is all due, of course, because of pride. Right? We hold servanthood in low esteem. This goes back to our very first parents who were created, and yes, they had lordship, and dominion over God's creation, but only in the, that they were subject to servants to him. And they rejected that and sought their, to open their own eyes to what was wise and good for them and rejected God's ways. And likewise for all their progeny down to our day. Again, we hold servanthood in low esteem. But God sees things differently much differently. According to God's ways, being a servant is a high calling. In fact, it's so high that he calls his people and even his own son to servanthood. So the Gospel of Luke sermon series, as Mike was relating, begins next Sunday and will continue for 67 weeks. And so as a prelude to this sermon series, today we're going to look at how some Old Testament passages in Isaiah uh, 40 through 55, and we're really going to zero in on the servant songs for particular passages within that greater body of Isaiah's prophecy. We're going to look at these and see how they anticipate the coming of Christ. And the hope here is that we prepare our hearts and minds to see more clearly who Jesus is as we go through the Gospel of Luke, right. to remind ourselves of his greatness, and that is in his servanthood. So Luke's sermon series is entitled The Surprising Kingdom, and one of the surprises of the kingdom is that the king comes as a servant, a servant who will, they, he must, give his life as a sacrifice in order to establish subjects for his kingdom. Apart from the sacrifice, there will be no subjects, proper subjects for him to rule from the heart. Now, this is surprising in the sense that this is counterintuitive to our fallen minds, as I've been trying to have been relating. But it's not surprising in that centuries before the coming of Christ, God announced through the prophet Isaiah the redeeming work of my servant in the servant songs. As I said, the servant songs are part of Isaiah chapters 40 through 55. Just a moment. In the background of that part of Isaiah, Isaiah's prophecy, a familiar story from the Old Testament. First, the Lord God has called someone into his service. In this case, it's the nation of Israel. Uh, 
the descendants of Abraham through his son Isaac and through his grandson Jacob. He has called them into service, into his service, making a covenant with them, forming them into be a nation, giving them a land, and he's given them charge. And then secondly, like all God's covenant partners, they had failed to abide by God's righteous standard. They had failed as his servants. And so, third, there is judgment that God promises for that failure. They will be taken into exile. They will be removed from the land that God had graciously given them. But fourth, finally, the Lord also prophesies that in his mercy, he will bring restoration. They will return to the land. They will experience his grace. And they will be restored as God's people, in God's place. Now, in this part of Isaiah, in chapters 40 through 55, there's frequent reference to my servant. Sometimes, this is a reference to uh, Israel or Jacob as a nation, and we see these terms in this part of Isaiah used in other parts of Scripture as well. Interchangeably, you may recall that uh, Jacob was renamed Israel by the angel of the Lord in Genesis 32 when he wrestled with the angel of the Lord. These terms are used synonymously. So sometimes a servant is a reference to Israel or Jacob as a nation, the people of God in the Old Testament. An example of this, and I'm not going to read, I'm, we have a lot to cover, so I'm um, not going to read any of this, but in chapters 44 through 45, uh, there's a corporate reference of my servant as God's people, as Israel, as the nation. As the Lord prophesies the nation's redemption, the return from exile through Cyrus, king of Persia. The Lord will use this pagan king to bless his people, to bring them back into the land of promise. He will uh, issue a decree that they might come back from exile into the land. But at several, and there are other places as well. That was just an example. But at key points, the servant is revealed to be a specific individual in what are known as the servant songs. Now, I think we have a slide of what we're going to cover here. and There are different views on the length of the first three servant songs, so don't be scandalized if you see your favorite verse missing from the slide that I, but I think we have. Anyway, um, Isaiah 42, 1 through 4, could go through 1 through 9. I'm going to read 1 through 4 today. Isaiah 49, 1 through 6, again, can go all the way to verse 13. Uh, Isaiah 50, verses 4 through 9, uh, and can extend to verse 10, depending, again, depending on theologians and commentators. As you might suspect, uh, none of these passages have a note in the margin that says, now ending the servant song, right? There's, there's a, some matter of interpretation for some of this. And finally, the one that is best known, the fourth servant song in Isaiah 52, 13, continuing through the end of chapter 53, which is verse 12. And there are, uh, this is an oversimplification, but I, to try to help us grasp what is being taught in each of these servant songs, I want us to see the first servant song in Isaiah 42. There's an emphasis, there's a, really an introduction that this is God's servant. There's a declaration, my servant. So there's a servant is declared. And then Isaiah 49, we learn and see more clearly that the servant is to be a savior, is to bring salvation. And then Isaiah 50, we see that this servant who will be a savior will bring that salvation through suffering, through his own suffering. And finally, in the fourth servant song, it, from chapter 52 and 53, we see that that suffering is very specific. He will suffer as a sacrifice, as a substitutionary atonement for God's people. And these build on each other, as I've been trying to relate, and there's a lot of crossover. Right? Again, this is a bit of an oversimplification, but I hope this will help us as we go through and try to bring out what God is decreeing and prophesying, claiming about his servant, as we will see this fulfilled in Jesus. And we'll be reading a lot of scriptures from Luke and seeing how Jesus is clearly identified as this servant. So the goal today is to go briefly through the servant songs, gleaning the primary ways the servant is portrayed, 
and how the Jesus of the Gospel of Luke fulfills the prophecies of the servant song. Through this, may our love for Jesus grow as we learn and are reminded of who he is. Today, I hope and pray, and, well, every day, but in particular, the burden as we go through the book of the Gospel of Luke. So, let's begin in Isaiah 42 with verses 1 through 4. I had it marked. Here we go. All right. Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Again, we could continue, but we will stop there. Now, it's very notable that the very first verse in the Servant Songs, chapter 42, verse 1 here, there is a clear echo and link in the New Testament at the beginning of Jesus' ministry in the Gospel of Luke with his baptism in Luke chapter 3, verses 21 through 22. We read, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus had also been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you, I am well pleased. There is not, frankly, a strong linguistic link here. But the concepts are very clear, and the teaching is very clear. Now, in Isaiah, we see this, there's declared to be a servant. He's chosen, and he is in whom God's delights, his soul delights in him, and the Spirit, the Holy Spirit will be upon him. And we see that in Jesus' baptism in Luke. Though there he is, the beloved son. We can equate that with a chosen servant. And God is, says he is well, the very voice of God, the audible voice of God says, I am well pleased in him. His soul delights in him. And the spirit comes down on him, we are told, in bodily form as a dove. The spirit will be on Jesus as we see in the servant song. Jesus here in his baptism, is identified as a servant. He is the one in whom God is well pleased. His soul delights in him. And why? Why would God's soul delight in him? Well, we begin to get a hint immediately because we are told many things. First, we are told that what God will do, he says, I will put my spirit on him. And then we are told what the servant will do. He will, there's several he wills and a couple he will nots. I, he will bring forth justice. He will not cry aloud, lift up his voice. He will not break a bruised reed. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint till he's established justice. God, the Father, speaks clearly of his servant with absolute confidence. He has put his spirit on him. His soul delights in him, and this servant will do God's will. He is in submission to God. He knows the role of a servant. That's to do the will of another. He will do God's desire. So God proclaims him and speaks of him. He will do these things. Think of the contrast here of the confidence that God the Father has in his servant, who is his son. Of course, we've been talking about Israel. The law goes to Israel. They know what they are to do, and with confidence. All that the Lord our God has said we will do. Right. Not so much. But it will not be that way with the servant. He will do God's will perfectly from the heart. And we see here, before we move on to the next servant song, a hint of the salvation that will come, that we will really get into in chapter 49. Uh, that the nations, we see in verse, that's at the, yes, at the end of verse 1, to bring forth justice to the nations. And then at the end of verse 4, the coastlands wait for his law. 
the pe- all the peoples of the world looking forward to this justice, and God will deliver justice and his law to all the world. The servant, who is a king, will have a universal kingdom. His servanthood is for people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. It's not just for Israel. It's not just for the physical descendants of Abraham, but all those who would put their faith in God as Abraham did and thereby be sons of Abraham by faith, as the New Testament tells us. And we can see this even a little more clearly if we go ahead and read verse 6. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. And we will read this again as we move on to the second servant song in chapter 49, verses 1 through 6. Again, we could continue more, but I'm going to read the first six voices and verses and listen for the familiar language that we've already covered, particularly light to nations. Chapter 49 of Isaiah. Listen to me, coast, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be a servant to bring Jacob back to him, And that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Amen. First, I want to deal with something that's important that we've already kind of referenced. The beginning is that in this section of Isaiah, there's frequent references to my servant, and it doesn't always mean exactly the same thing, right? Sometimes it means the group. Sometimes it means an individual. What we read here in verse 3, it sure seems like talking about the group. And he said to me, though notice here that the the servant is I, me. It's in the first person. So God says to the servant, he says, you are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. Well, that sure sounds like the group, Israel, doesn't it? So how do we, why do we say that, no, this is an individual? It's because as we look to verses 5 and 6, we see that this servant who is identified as Israel in verse 3 is going to Deliver. He's going to save Israel or Jacob. Again, those are synonymous terms here. In verse 5, the servant will bring back Jacob. Will bring Jacob back, I should say. Will gather Israel. In verse 6, he will raise up the tribes of Jacob. He will bring back Israel. Israel cannot save herself. The people of Israel are incapable of saving themselves. They could not obey God. They had every intention All that the Lord our God has said we will do. No. And they came under judgment. And they are incapable, as we all are, of saving themselves. It will be the individual, it will be the the servant, my servant, that one person who will save them, who will bring them back. So why, in verse 3, is the servant, who is an individual, described as Israel, has the corporate name? It's because... The servant will stand for the nation. He will represent, he will be, in theological terms, the federal head of God's people. This is a very biblical concept, and it was, in the time the Bible Bible was written to the people then, it was commonplace for them to understand their life this way. Uh, The king stood and represented the people. 
As the king rose or fell, so the people rose or fell. In our context, it's a little different. We're much more individualistic, and we're not used to having anyone else uh, stand in our place, and we just, our fate lies with them, right? Unless we're a Christian, of course, and that's here the point, right? Is that this is the way uh, Adam and Eve, were, Adam was created, the first man. He was the federal head. He was the head of the human race. And so when Adam sinned, and therefore brought judgment on himself and death. So we are all born sinners, and we are all born under the sentence of death. And of course, we, we, we have a sin nature. We sin by choice. We are condemned for our own sin as well. But the judgment has fallen on all, not just Adam, but all of his progeny. Adam stood for the people, for all the people. This is taught in Romans chapter 5 and in 1 Corinthians 15, where we also see that God is creating a new humanity, there is a second head of the human race, and that is Jesus Christ. It is the individual here called Israel, the servant, who stands for all the people of God. And his obedience will be their obedience. And we will see that later in the sermon songs, and his death will stand for their death. The condemnation of death will not come upon them. And so here... God prophesies clearly that the servant, the individual, will stand for the people of God. Now, we see here, there's a lot more here. We can't cover it all. But I do want to touch on that in verse 1, and we see this echoed later in the servant song here in 49.1, the Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother, he named my name. This is Bible talk, if you will, for being chosen. Right? We've already seen that. My chosen servant. I have chosen. That the servant is chosen by God. He is, has a special role that he has been given by God, as Jesus had from his father. And he has been set apart for this purpose as the servant of God. We also see language of universal, of, of salvation, I should say, that will extend to people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Not universal in the sense of every single person we say, but in the sense of it's a universal kingdom. It will reign, God will reign over all the earth, and people from all over will come and worship him, will be his people, not just Israel. And that is God's purpose. It has been God's purpose we see here in verse, in verse 6 and 49.6, says, I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. It'd be too small a thing, God says, too light a thing. Wouldn't be worthy of the greatness of my servant to, for him to just save ethnic Israel. No, he will have a universal kingdom. He will be established all over the earth. And people from all Every nation, tribe, and tongue will come and worship him. This, of course, is a fulfillment of God promising fulfillment of promises made to Abraham long, long ago. In Genesis chapter 12, God had promised that Abraham, that through Abraham and through his descendant, the whole world, all the families of the world would be blessed. This promise was reiterated to Abraham, and he was Abram, actually, technically, in Genesis 12, and this promise is reiterated to Abraham. Now Abraham, in Genesis 22, after he is willing to give up his son Isaac as a sacrifice, his promised son, God tells him that because he was willing to obey him even in this hard thing, that again, he reiterates the promise, all the peoples of the earth, all the families of the earth will be blessed through the descendant of Abraham. Ultimately, that descendant is Jesus Christ, is the servant here. And we see the Gospel of Luke clearly identify Jesus as that servant and as fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham. Mary, in Luke chapter 1, verses 54 through 55, in her hymn of praise, the Magnificat, she says, he has helped, that is God, of course, he has helped his servant Israel 
in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. She is rejoicing that she has been chosen to bear the Son of God. And she recognizes that through this child, God is going to rescue his people, his servant, Israel, according to the mercy and the promise that he had made to Abraham and to Abraham's offspring forever. Zechariah, later in chapter 1, makes a similar prophecy when he prophesies over at the birth of John the Baptist. And Simeon, in Luke chapter 2, and I want to read this because it's more direct, the language is more direct connect with Isaiah 49. But Simeon, when Jesus is presented at the temple, and Simeon sees the Christ child, he sees God's salvation. Here's what he says. He prays. He says, For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. So how will this servant save? He's going to be a savior. He's going to be a light to all the world. There's going to be a, a, a salvation to the end of the earth, we're told in the servant songs. How is it that he will save? And here we see a contrast with Cyrus, who was mentioned earlier. An important player in this section of Isaiah is Cyrus, the, the king of Persia, who will really issue the decree that the, people, the Jewish people might come back to the land. But they had gone into exile because they were idol worshipers, because they were not servants of God. And though Cyrus, under God's sovereign direction, will graciously decree that the people go back and be reestablished as God's people in, in the land, nonetheless, there was no power there to change the heart. The people went to exile, and they come back. And yes, they were changed by their experience, but their heart is not any the hearts of the people are not different. They still, like all of us, like Adam and Eve and all of us down to this day, do not, in their flesh, servanthood doesn't appeal to them. To be subject to God and to, to surrender, truly surrender and put their trust in him to do whatever he would ask of them and all that he would ask of them is still not there for them. No, it's going to take more and what Cyrus can do, as, as important as that was, historically, the scripture, God's servant is going to do a much, much greater work. But it's going to cost him. It's going to be costly. Everything worthwhile is costly. So we turn to Isaiah 50, and we begin with verse 4, the third servant song. And we see here the servant revealed to be a sufferer. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike me, and my cheeks to those who pluck, pull out my beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. We'll stop there. Again, here we see a development in our understanding of who this servant will be of what he will do. Note, first of all, 
In verses 4 and 5, he is revealed to be very humble, gracious, gentle, teachable. We've already gotten a hint of this back in Isaiah 42, that a bruised reed he will not break, right? A smoking flask he will not quench. But here we see this restated in a different language. The Lord God has given, and again, this is in the first person, the servant speaking. He says, he has given me the tongue of those who are taught. He's given me wisdom. He's imbued in me godly wisdom. What for? So that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary, so that he can be gracious to other people. Think of Jesus' ministry. The Son of Man did not come to condemn, but to save, right? He came to bless. He came to bring God's rule and reign upon the earth and to be a blessing and a, and a hope to God's people. So he's given wisdom to sustain with a word him who is weary. And how did he get this wisdom? Yeah, he was taught, but you know, we all know, right? You can't, we know this with young, you know, we've all experienced this with, with younger people, right? You can't teach somebody if they're not teachable, right? You gotta be teachable. Well, God's servant's teachable. In verse five, the Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. Well, why would the servant possibly be rebellious or turn backward from what God would ask, what, God would, what, what God's will would be? Well, we get some insight into that. We'll see more in the fourth servant song, but spoiler alert, we know the story, right? It is God's will for the servant to suffer, to be put to shame, And he will finally say, not my will, but yours be done. Even though I'd, I'd skip this part, let this cup pass, if we could, but no, not my will, but your, be, your will be done. So the servant here says that God opened his ear, and when the will of God for him was revealed, he embraced it. He did not turn back. And then we begin to see some insight into what that, what that is in verse 6, it says, I gave my back to those who strike me. I was whipped. I gave my back for more. My cheeks to those who pull out the beard. Take some more. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. It's important to see here. Uh, and it's, again, there's a bit of a cultural difference. Uh, the world of the Bible is, the culture is honor, shame. And we understand those things, but our culture is more geared around guilt and innocence is the primary focus in our society. And the crucifixion, as horrible physical torture as it was, the, the real disgrace of it, the real horror of it to the, to the Jew was and to all of the peoples at the time, was the, the shame of it. Shame. To be tortured and played with and spit upon, and then to be nailed to a cross and hung up there naked. And then you didn't get a proper burial. They would just leave your body up there, they'd throw it. Animals would come and scavenge. It was, it was a shame. Just horrible shame. And these things that are described here point us to that because they're shameful. Right? To have your beard plucked was a shameful thing for a man. It meant you were powerless, right? I mean, think about it. That's, he says here, the servant says, I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. We can relate to that, right? If, you, if someone's spit upon, it, it's shameful. How on earth... Could the servant embrace this will that God had for his life and say, not my will, but yours be done? It's because he knows, well, he loves his father. The servant loves God with all his heart. And he also knows that he will be vindicated. We see this in verse 7 and continuing. He says, but the Lord God helps me 
Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Just, it's going to look like that for a moment, but it's not going to be. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. This is echoed in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, I think. Yes, 51, where Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem. What's so significant about Jerusalem? Why would it be so? Why do you have to? He set his face to go to Jerusalem. It's because that's where he knew that he was going to be tortured and disgraced and shamed and crucified, put to death. And the servant here says, I have set my face like a flint, and I know, I know I will not be put to shame. Why? Because he who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? (laughs) Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. In the end, God's servant will be triumphant. It's not going to look like it for a while, but he will be. And we see this shame, in particular, in the crucifixion for the Jewish people in the time of Christ. They understood crucifixion, which was you were nailed to a wooden cross, wood obviously from a tree, and they saw this as a fulfillment of Deuteronomy 21, 23, that cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So for them to condemn Jesus as a blasphemer, to have hand him over, to have him put to death, and to have him crucified was the fail-safe proof that this guy was an imposter. He's no prophet. He's certainly not the Messiah. He's cursed. I mean, God's Messiah, God's servant couldn't be cursed. That's nonsensical. But of course, that's the point. There was a curse on the people of God because of their disobedience. And the servant, Christ, takes that curse upon himself, bears that curse that those who have the curse on them for their their own disobedience would be freed from it. It's a little bit, to paraphrase the Apostle Paul from 2 Corinthians chapter 9, in the the context there, he's he's encouraging the Corinthians to be generous, right? So he wants to talk about grace, and uh, he talks about in terms of rich and poor, right? So to kind of paraphrase that, Paul might put it this way about Jesus and the cursing and the blessing. He says that you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was blessed, he became cursed, so that you, through his cursing, might become blessed blessed. That's the gospel. And that, but again, the servant is triumphant. He is vindicated. How so? It's the resurrection, right? That's the proof that he is, in fact, God's chosen servant, that he is, in fact, God's king. He was raised from the dead. So now he has power over death, to free all of his people from death. So again, we see this vindication, and Jesus himself interprets his experience, his life, according to this prophecy. Uh, In Luke chapter 24, verses 25 through 27, he's on the road to Emmaus, right? And uh, he was crucified, and the disciples are either afraid, or, well, they're all afraid, and most, some of them are running, some of them are huddling down, right? And a couple of them are like, hey, we're just going to get out of town, you know? And so Jesus comes along, and of course, they have a conversation, and uh, they tell him, you know, we, we really hoped, <laughs> we thought that this, this Jesus could be, be the Messiah. He could, he could be that servant king, but it's put to death. Show's over. We're leaving. And Jesus says to them, in verse 25, beginning there, he says, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them 
in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus understood there's an order. Because there's a curse upon this world of disobedience to all of Adam's progeny, and God is going to desire to save a people for himself to create a new humanity, that, that penalty and price has to be paid. And so there must be suffering before there can be glory. The Christ should suffer and then enter into his glory, he's saying. Now, and we don't know for sure because we're not told. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, the interpreter of the scriptures, can't say for sure, but boy, it sure seems likely that Isaiah 50 or Isaiah 52, 53 might have made the list of Jesus' Bible lesson. Wouldn't we all have loved to have been there? So finally, we come to the fourth servant song. Best known. And in so many ways, the most powerful. So I'm going to read, beginning with chapter 52, verse 13, all the way through the end of verse, or through the end of chapter 53, which is verse 12. We're, we're going to get here again, as we've said before, a fuller picture of what, this, what the meaning of this suffering is. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. And that which has not been told from, excuse me, for that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of God, of the Lord, to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, Make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for transgressors. 
It is impossible to read that without getting choked up, and it is difficult to read that without breaking down. We see here in verse 12, part of verse 12 is a direct quote in Luke chapter, let me get my bearings here. Luke, I'm sorry. I'm, excuse me, Luke chapter 22, verse 37. And that is, there we read in Luke's gospel, Jesus' own words, he says, For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. What scripture? This one. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. So isn't it tidy that we began the beginning of Jesus' ministry in Luke's gospel with his baptism? We see a clear echo from the beginning of the servant songs and here as Jesus is ready to end his public ministry with his death, he quotes directly from the end of the servant songs. And keep in mind that though there's just a few words, Jesus says, right? He says that this scripture must be fulfilled. And there's just one phrase within one verse of a fairly lengthy section that Jesus' disciples and the readers, and we should as well understand that this is pointing to Jesus fulfilling all of this. It's, it's assumed. It's, it's taking this snippet and saying, this scripture, meaning all of it. It's, I try to think of an analogy, and I, I hope this kind of works anyway, but um, this is a big football area, and people remember the, the Seahawks, I don't know if anybody's heard, but the Seahawks won the Super Bowl like 10 years ago, I think it was now, right? Uh, they haven't gotten, well, they got back, but they, didn't, they lost. But anyway, um, we don't talk about that. But um, if you say, say the Seahawks win a few games at the beginning of the year, and you, and you say to your buddy, your friend, you say, you know, I like these guys. They make me think of 2013. They know what you mean, right? Well, they, they don't have to say, because we had a, the Seahawks were really good that year, and they went 13-3, and and then they won all their playoff games, and they were Super Bowl champions. They don't have to go and explain the whole thing, right? All they just say is just, a number, in this case, a calendar year, and you know what that means, right? Because you understand the reference. It's somewhat similar, right? That this is of a piece, this prophecy is of a piece, and when Jesus quotes from just this little snippet of it, he's indicating, this is all about me. So, what is said here about, if this is all about Jesus, what specifically is said about Jesus, we only have so much time, so I'm going to try to be brief here, but there are, uh, at the end of 52, at the beginning of the, this fourth servant song, we see a reference again that the servant will be, he will act wisely, but he will be high and lifted up, he will be exalted, and this is also, however, reference to, he will be lifted up at crucifixion, uh, and in verse 15, he will sprinkle many nations, this is an allusion to the sprinkling of blood atonement in the Old Testament. In Exodus 24, Moses sprinkled the people. And we see in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24. Actually, I should have marked that. I want to read that. My apologies. Uh, we see... And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Jesus sprinkles the nations with his own blood. Again, this is for a kingdom of people from every tribe, nation, tribe, and tongue. Not just for one ethnic people, but with worldwide scope. And we here have a picture of the purpose of the suffering. Right? Why has God the Father ordained that his son would suffer and die? We read verses 4, 5, and 6 of the substitutionary atonement. That he has, surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. Verse 5, he has pierced for our transgressions, cursed, crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace is on him. By his wounds we are healed. Why? 
Well, verse 6 tells us, All we like sheep have gone astray, have turned everyone to his own way. What an accurate description, not that we would expect any less from God's word, don't get me wrong, but what a very accurate description of humanity, right? We are all like sheep, we've gone our own way, doing our own thing. Not a servant. Servants do the will of another. We're like sheep gone astray. We're, we got our own gig going. We know what's best for us. We don't need anybody else telling us what to do. Not even God. This is the spirit that comes out of Eden, out of the fall. If you are with us today and you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're not a Christian, I pray that you would take to heart this description of your life, of your, of your soul, of your heart. It doesn't just describe you. It describes all of us, all of fallen humanity. We have all strayed. We have all rejected servanthood of God. We have all rejected his ways and following him. Uh, and, but God, in his mercy, in his desire to claim a people for himself has placed the, the sin and the, the disobedience and the curse that is upon all of God's people, all on the suffering servant, that he would bear vicariously as a substitutionary atonement, that there would be a transfer, as we see, that our iniquities, that our transgressions would be placed upon him, and that he would suffer and die in our place and then there would be another part of the transfer that is the gospel. That by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, this is in verse 11, make many to be accounted righteous. That when we place our faith and trust in Jesus, when we repent, put our faith and trust in Jesus, that his righteousness is accounted to us. And so... The gospel calls us, this is the good news, and the gospel calls us to repent and believe, to repent. To repent means to change or to turn. And again, we have this description here. Sheep who have gone astray, everyone his own way. Repentance means to turn, to come back. Come back willingly. Return to God and put your faith and trust in him. This is the proclamation that Jesus has given to the church. This is what we must embrace to be a Christian. Uh, servanthood of God to come before him. And the grace and beauty of the gospel is, as the scripture tells us, that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. If you don't have confidence that if you confess your sins and tell anybody or God how awful you are that you will be forgiven, you won't do it. But God comes, and it's his kindness, it is his grace, that if we just come to him, if we humble ourselves, we have a humble and contrite heart, we're told in the word, God will not despise that. If we come confessing, right, he will receive us. We can have absolute confidence. There's no reason to hold back as there often are in human relationships, sadly. It's not, it shouldn't be that way. It certainly shouldn't be that way in the body of Christ, but it can be. It's not ever that way with God. Right? The kindness of God leads us to repentance. Come to Jesus. Put, put your trust in him. I pray that you would do that today, that you would submit to him, that you would acknowledge that he is God's servant, that he is God's son, that he and he alone has done the perfect will of God. He has loved God with all his heart. He has said, not my will, but yours be done. And he has loved his neighbor as himself. He has loved the people of God by giving himself as a sacrifice on our behalf. And if you are a Christian, know that repentance is not only a one-time event. It is that. But it is not only that. It's a lifestyle of walking in humility with the Lord. As we've said, God will not despise a humble and contrite heart. So, servanthood is, 
or excuse me, repentance is for sinners, including saved ones who have not yet been perfected in glory. Walking in repentance is the posture of one who is a follower of God's servant, Jesus. It is the mark of humility that the Lord uses as he shapes us into the image of Christ. For all God's people are called to be his servants, as we've said. Just as Israel was called to servanthood, so too is the church of God. But where Israel failed, by God's grace, we shall succeed, not in our own strength and power by any means, and not with perfection of performance, certainly not, but by a submissive faith in Christ that is a gift of God. We come to Christ in faith and submit ourselves to him and to his will. We fulfill God's purpose for us as his servants, not by trying harder to keep the rules, but by trusting in the one true servant who has gone before us, and that is Jesus Christ. In Luke chapter 22, is recorded for us a scene, a dispute among the apostles. We read, a dispute also arose among them, the apostles, as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. King Jesus is among us as one who serves. Are you surprised? <laughs> if you were when we began, you shouldn't be now. Nor should you be surprised that the capital S servant calls his disciples to serve also. Disciples not above his master, as we learn elsewhere. No matter what we, so no matter what we wanted to be, want, it, want now or wanted to be when we grow up, or what our vocation happens to be now, if we are Christian, we are called to be servants of God first and foremost, always, but also then of his people, because to be a servant means to do his will, and that's his will that we serve his people. And no one can be a servant on their own terms. That's not what it means to be a servant. The essence of servanthood is doing another's will. It is God's will that we serve one another in the body of Christ. So I just want to conclude with some encouragement. We have, there's a one another commands. There's 30 of these, and there's a bunch. I made sure that there were lots of copies. There's a table as you go down the back stairwell. And these have been there for a while. Most of you probably have these. Maybe you know right where it is. Maybe you consult it. Maybe you don't. Um, uh, but I encourage you to dig it out at home. Grab one if you're not sure where yours is or if you don't have one. And there's 30 of them. Well, it so happens, right, that in two days we start a new month, November 1st, and there are 30 days in that month. And next Sunday, as has been said, we will start the Gospel of Luke, and we will see there God, what God is doing through Jesus his servant king, uh, establishing his kingdom. And I would encourage you to incorporate these one a day into your uh, devotions, into your prayers, whether it's an individual, a couple, a family, whatever it might be, in some capacity. And ask God, pray that God would put on your heart and show you and reveal to you how you can be one of these to somebody else here in the body of Christ. One of them is serve one another, and the others are all essentially more specific of how to do that, of what that might look like, right? Uh, bear with one another, forgive one another, carry one another's burdens, and so on. And we know this is God's will for us, that we serve one another, and if we pray according to his will, he will grant our desire. So I just encourage you to, to look at that and to, to pray and meditate and ask God to open our heart, your hearts and our minds and how we can be serving him by serving one another. It's God's will and desire for our lives. And uh, it, Lord willing, we remind ourselves uh, as we learn from our servant King Jesus in the weeks and months ahead. We are looking forward to the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, you know how grateful we are for your Servant, your chosen servant, King Jesus, Lord. 
Oh, Lord. Never has there been a man like this, a God-man, a man who has had every privilege as the Son of God, as the eternal Word, and yet, Lord, humbled himself to come and suffer and sacrifice himself to claim a people for you, Lord. Our hearts are full of gratitude, and we cannot even begin to express the love that we feel and experience and that we wish to show to you through our Lord Jesus Christ, Lord. I pray that you would shape us and mold us into servants made in, the, in his image, Lord, that all this would be for your glory, that uh, you be glorified in your church just as you are glorified in your son. In his name we pray, amen.